Let's uh, move into our, our time of study uh, again this morning. We're in the book of Second Peter, as we've uh, been uh, journeying through Peter's letters, looking at First Peter, and then starting last week, um, just looking at this incredible um, epistle. There's so much in it that's applicable. Last week we looked at the his- historicity of this, that this is a real um letter by peter to the believers at that time seemingly written from babylon uh, there was a church on the banks of the euphrates uh in the the first century peter writing to encourage and to speak very much of how we should be living in light of the fact that the lord is returning soon now peter wrote that some almost two thousand years ago um doesn't change the fact that the Lord is still returning soon. We we know for for sure that we are a day closer than we were yesterday to the Lord's return. And we need to be considering how as believers we should be living in these days, how our lives should be, what kind of witness we should be showing to the world around us. So we're going to uh pick up in a moment from uh, verse five, which is where we've got to. Let me uh, just give you the few verses that we covered last week. I'm not going to go through them obviously in detail, uh, but just so we get a springboard into this study this morning. So 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, again, both names, the the, the, the earthly Simon, the, um, the spiritual Peter, as it were. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God, and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We did mention last week that statement in the Greek. It's speaking of God, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. That That's the, the idea that's there. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue now peter's going to build on this in the the section we're going to move into in just a moment but just to highlight again uh in this verse what peter's saying to us that the the divine power that, that god has he has given to us everything that we need all things that pertain unto life and godliness so we can't turn around and say oh it's too hard i can't do it the the bar is too high i, I can't attain to that standard or the standard that that james said we should be living to that peter's now speaking about the way we should live because we're we're clearly told here that god has given us these things now, again through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue now peter's going to use that word again uh in just a moment as we build on this but then we spent most of our time last week looking at verse four, where it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these, that because of the promises we've been given, that we may be partakers of the divine nature. The, the promises do two things. They help us to be partakers of the divine nature, live a godly, holy, righteous life. And the second part of that is also then the, the, the other side of that coin, as it were, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The world craves all sorts of things, thinking that those things will satisfy it. And of course, the world would love to draw us into its systems. We have this great marketing machine of the world that, that presents everything that, that we didn't even know that we needed in a way that tells us we must have it. And of course, the, the, this idea of lust isn't just about the physical. Uh, it's about craving or desiring anything that ultimately comes in and competes for that 
time and attention in our hearts that should be devoted and given to God. And, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the worldly system, the worldly way of things. Uh, but what we're told here is that we shouldn't be given to those things. And one of the key things that God has given us as a, a safeguard against that are the promises. You know, we've got this, this assurance that we can, uh, we can finish this race. We can run the course because we've got something so great, so wonderful awaiting us. You know, promises like the fact that, you know, the, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. What a great promise that is. It tells us, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't fall back into the things of this world, thinking that they will give you the satisfaction or the or uh, kind of itch that uh, that thing that's scratching in your life. The, the, the things of the world won't do that. But if we just tr- trust and wait upon the Lord, then everything that we want, everything that we need to make us complete and fulfilled, will be given through Jesus Christ. So. These promises I say, we focused a lot on that last time. We're going to build on that now as we springboard off into this next block, starting at verse five. And we read, and beside this, giving all diligence. Now, let me just first of all, just talk about that beside. So we're talking about escaping the corruption that is in the world because of those promises that we've been given. So that's that's the context as we flow into this next verse. And so beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to go back and make camp here for a while because there's so much in these verses that we need to just draw out uh, and hopefully there'll be a, an edification and a blessing and an encouragement to us. So let's just go back to verse five and it says, beside this, giving all diligence. That's the first thing we need to just take note of. Uh, that word diligence is the casual dictionary search tells us that it means careful and persistent work or effort. Let's make it really, really clear that we are saved by grace. That that's that's the the message that we have throughout Scripture. We're saved by grace, um, but that we are to work uh, and do things that require effort that the Lord will then use as part of our growth and development. So our salvation is a free gift. And indeed, sanctification is also a work of the Spirit of God in us. And we'll talk about this as we go through, that you can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself righteous. It's not that we make some resolutions like people typically do in January uh, as this kind of determined effort to to get right. And we'll, we'll see this even come out in this list that Peter gives us here. Um, it has to be based upon the work of God, but there has to be that cooperation. There has to be that willingness on our part to let God do this work in us. I think uh, it was said some time ago by a great preacher, you know, that, you know, are you willing for God to do this work in you? And if you are not willing, are you willing to be made willing? And really, that's what we're looking at here, that that willingness for God to do something in us and then taking the steps as God lays them out in front of you to, in a sense, go through the doors of opportunity that God gives you to grow. 
David Guzik and his commentary on this verse says this, giving all diligence. These beautiful qualities are not things that the Lord simply pours into us as we passively receive. Instead, we are called to give all diligence to these things, working in partnership with God to add them. Okay, that's a really important point that he brings out there. This is how it is to work, that we work in partnership with God. We can't obtain these things on our own. And but God won't force them upon us either. So we have to work in partnership as God will then pour these things into us. But they won't happen if we just sit back and just hopefully one day we're going to wake up righteous and holy. And, and so it doesn't work that way. And we're going to see this uh, being built on. So the first thing we're told is that we need to be diligent in these things. We need to go after this. Paul says about running the race. You know, that the people in the world strive for a, a crown that's perishable, that fades away. But we're striving for an imperishable crown, something that is of eternal value. So we begin with the, the first one on this list. Add to your faith. OK, now some people might skip over that and start with virtue as the first on our list. And if you do that, you make a list of seven, which is fine. Uh, but really, faith is part of this because we're starting with faith and we're adding to that as we start to build up uh, this list of characteristics of attributes uh, that should be seen in the life of a true believer so we're told add to your faith and of course that uh, verse that we've had today uh, our verse uh, or we're sorry we're going we're gonna to see uh, in a moment but our verse of the week speaks about um, uh, the faith that God uh, installs in us that comes by the word of God and Romans 13 3 tells us according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith so we can't say that we don't have enough faith to believe or that we don't have enough faith to trust because God has given to everybody, to all men, a measure of faith. And in fact, even just simply looking at creation in the beginning of the book of Romans, we're told that there is enough there to convict and convince people that there is a creator. We see creation. There couldn't be better evidence that there is a creator than the fact we have creation. If you see a picture, you know that there was a painter. If you see a building, you know that there was a builder. You may not have seen or met the builder, or you may not have seen or met the painter. But the existence of a painting or a building is the evidence in itself that a painter or a builder existed and they created this work. Well, when we look at creation, when we look at the world around us, we see symmetry, we see design, we see all sorts of things that cannot come about by random processes. Um, the whole theory of evolution is, is intellectually bankrupt when you start to look at it. Of course, our academia tries to promote it as fact, uh, and it's taught to our young children as if it were fact. As I've uh, shared many times, I think that uh, I had a, a debate with Michael Gove when he was education secretary, and I basically asked the question, you know, okay, so you're going to propose to teach this as to our primary school children. Um, you know, what evidence do you have? Can you give me one piece of evidence? Um, and they, they came back with a, you know, we've got a lot of scientists and so on, and, you know, we, we consult with them. So I said, great, go and ask them, what piece of evidence do you have? And the, the response came back basically that, you know, well, we don't have anything, but we're going to do it anyway. That was a summary of what they replied. It, it, it's utter nonsense. You know, we, we don't need um, uh, a degree in, in science or biology or chemistry to, to look at this world and recognize that God is the creator. Uh, it's so obvious when we look around, and we see the design. So God has given to everyone a measure of faith. Um, some people choose to deny it. And this is what Psalm 14 says, that the fool has said in his heart, 
no God. Not It's translated, there is no God. But actually, the text says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. In other words, they acknowledge God in their hearts, but they reject God. They say, no, I don't want God. Uh, and that's what the fool has done. That's what all these so-called scientists have done who reject God. Uh, they don't want to believe in God, so therefore they try and find some other uh, explanation, which, of course, doesn't work. So again, everybody has faith. Everybody has that ability to believe. Um, but we're to add to that faith virtue. OK, now we're going to come to that in a second. But let's just just, just look at this. I'll just read uh, from Hebrews 11, verse 6, which tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, we are to get to that place that we believe that God is who God says he is, that he really is the creator. We must accept that by faith. We must also accept the fact that and faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's never the worldly perception of what faith is. It's not that at all. It's faith based upon the evidence. You know, and also believe that God really is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So we, this is our foundation. This is our starting point. We have this faith and this confidence in who God is. And if we believe that God is who the Bible tells us God is, then we can go on and build on that foundation. If you doubt that, then you're not going to be able to build on this foundation at all. You know, we know this is true. We know that everything around us is the work of God. We know that our faith is true. We know that Jesus Christ lived and died, that he rose from the dead on the third day. That is the foundation. And we accept that as true. Again, not just because our parents told us or we were taught it in Sunday school but because we can go out and we can check these things we can test these things we can look at the historical records we can see that the entire bible was written by the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and nobody challenged the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead there's a document that exists uh, the acts of Pilate uh, which uh, purportedly is what Pilate actually sent to Rome uh, as his um, statement of all that had occurred and including the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. So, you know, it's one of the greatest attested to facts of history, the resurrection. And of course, Paul says that is the foundation of our faith. So with this basis, knowing all this is true, we then have that question, really, which is, OK, what are we going to do with it? And that's what Peter really is addressing now in the, the rest of this list, the other seven things that he now gives us. Chuck Misler, when he used to start meetings, often used to say to people, uh, how many of you are saved? And a number of people would put their hands up and he'd say, great, what have you done with it? You know, but it's, it's, a, it's a very valid question. We're not just to get saved and be grateful for our salvation and the fact that our eternity is secure and then sit down and, and not expect to, to do anything. There, there is action implied. Once we are saved, that we are to grow, that we are to bear fruit, we're to produce that fruit uh, and so on. We've been appointed to good works and so on. And many scriptures we could reference at this point, but let's just keep moving for now. So what are we going to do with it? Well, this is what Peter addresses now. So the first thing he says we should add to that foundation of our faith is virtue. Now, why does that come first in the list? Well, it's simply because if we have this understanding that God is who he says he is and we believe all these things we believe, it should produce a change of heart and mind. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're told we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
And we're told they're there that it's our reasonable. The Greek word is uh, is logikos, which is logical. It's our logical service. It's just a logical outcome of realizing what God has done and who God is. So once we have that faith, it should produce in us that change that we live this virtuous life. Well, what is virtue? Well, again, the dictionary definition gives it as moral excellence. It's a behavior showing high moral standards. And of course, once you come to that place of recognizing that God is God, that we are his creation, that we are subject to him, that everyone will stand before God one way or another. As a Christian, we will stand uh, before the, the judgment seat, the beamer seat of Christ, First Corinthians 3 and Second Corinthians um, uh, 5, I believe it is, give us the details and, and some information about that. The rest of the world get to stand before the, the great white throne uh, right at the end after the millennium. Uh, but everybody's going to get to stand before God. Well, knowing that we will be judged of God one way or another, then it should impact, it should change how we live our lives. Let me just give you a very simple example. I've used this kind of example before, but you're driving along in a car and suddenly you notice behind you that there is a police car or maybe at the side of the road as you drive past. What does it do? It changes your behavior. You'll immediately look at your speedometer um, just to check that you are doing the right speed. It brings this knowledge of a moral standard that we should be attaining to. Well, in a crude sense, that's exactly what Peter's saying here. With the faith that we have, it should bring about a, just a simple, obvious change in behavior. We should recognize straight away that certain things are not acceptable as a Christian. Certain things just do not fit with a, a Christian lifestyle where we are serving and following after our holy God, a God who has sent his son to die to pay the price for our sin. So initially, there should be that immediate change. It's the verse of the, the week um, that uh, Marla shared with us last week. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Our mind has to be changed. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we're to be Christ-like in the way that we think. Okay. And therefore, obviously, behave differently as well. You know, we know that God is holy and that we also have been called to be holy. So just simply building on the foundation that we have, this faith that we have, there should be this change. We should be virtuous. There should be this moral excellence about the way we conduct ourselves. And of course, even a non-Christian will tell you that there is a way that you should be living as a Christian. You know, you, you may have heard it said before by, by non-Christians, if you've been in the workplace. Um, you know, I, I've had comments in the past where colleagues have been going out after work, maybe going to a nightclub or whatever, and they'll turn around and they've made the comments to me, oh, Barry, you wouldn't want to come. You know, without even saying, would you like to come? And of course, I wouldn't have done, but they just know because of my position as a Christian that certain things are just not acceptable to me. So, you know, the world understands that there is a different way of living for those who are Christians who profess to follow Jesus Christ. So we have this moral standard. So that's the first thing that Peter says that we should add to our faith that we build on. And that's a, a very basic, simple thing. As we grow as Christians, when we're young Christians, it's fairly obvious, simple change that we need to start living in a particular certain way. And then we're told to build on that to add to virtue 
knowledge. Now, so you'll see there's a progression in all of these things. And there's no, I don't believe there's any um, randomness to the order that Prita presents these things. These, I believe, are really are intended as a one builds upon the other. So we start with faith. We add that virtue, that knowledge of the, that we should change. But then Peter says that we should add knowledge. Now, looking at some of the things that follow in this list, it may seem strange that knowledge is put in here, even at all, but in this particular place, that it's kind of right at the the front end of the list. So why is that? Well, the knowledge that is being referred to, uh, looking at the way this word in the Greek is used other places in the New Testament, it, it really speaks of the general knowledge of the Christian faith. So we're saved. We have faith. We recognize a change in lifestyle is is necessary. And then accompanying that is, okay, so how do I do this? In my own particular situation, I may have shared this before as well. Uh, when I um, started drumming, uh, I started drumming eight years old, but I got in my first band when I was 13. It was a Christian band and we were going to go out and, and play places uh, and talk to people about Jesus. That was the, the intention. And the Lord opened various opportunities to do that. And I realized that if we were going to go out and talk about the Lord, that I had to know about the Lord. I had to know what the Bible said. And that for me was the real catalyst to start reading the Bible. A bit like Matt was saying earlier, you know, I didn't read anything else uh, other than the Bible. I, I shared this too, that my mum used to give us as we, as children um, some money, it was 50p or whatever it was back in the day, which was a lot of money back then, um, to read a book. My sister made a fortune. She did really out of this. I just couldn't be bothered. I didn't, I wasn't at all interested. The money didn't just didn't mean anything to me. I wasn't bothered about reading until I started reading the Bible. And then when I was 13 that year, uh, I read the Bible all the way through for the first time. I didn't understand it all, but there was bits I, I kind of gleaned. And then the next year I did it and I just became that habit of just continually reading the Bible through because I recognized I needed to understand what it was I was professing to believe. And this, I think, is what Peter's saying, that as you grow in grace, you need to add this knowledge. And it's a general knowledge of the Christian faith. What is it that we believe? What is it when we say we are a Christian that we're actually saying? What is it that we follow? Another way this is used uh, in the New Testament, this Greek word, is really re uh, referring to the deeper, more perfect an enlarged knowledge of this faith, such as belongs to the more advanced. So that now gets into understanding things to do with doctrine, understanding grace, for example, understanding sanctification, understanding what God is calling us to when he calls us to holiness, understanding, for example, some of the Old Testament ideas when we look at the uh, feasts of Israel. Uh, how they speak to us, or particularly when we read Leviticus and we start to read about the various sacrifices, you know, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, you know, the, these these five offerings that are given us there in the beginning of Leviticus, what do they mean to us? And understanding how that should apply. So it's not just a, a cursory overview, that's the first part, but then it's going on. So we really start to understand what God has given us in his word for our learning. You remember, of course, that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God. And why? Because it's there for our, our learning, as Paul says in Romans, that we through the patience and the comfort of scripture might have hope. So all scripture is there for us that we may grow and that we may learn. Again, of course, it necessitates this reading and understanding of scripture. The third thing, of course, is especially 
of things lawful and unlawful for Christians, because this then becomes part of that equation. Naturally, our conscience will tell us that we need to live virtuously. But what is it the Bible says? What actually is God's standard? Because actually, if we were just to go on our own standard of what we think is virtuous or right, we might still fall way short of God's standard. See, God's standard is holiness, is perfection. So we need to read scripture and understand the things that are lawful and unlawful. And I'm not talking about being under the law, but I'm talking about that which is right in God's eyes, as opposed to, you know, things that we may have perceived or thought were okay. And then suddenly as we grow in grace, we recognize actually those things are not helpful. In fact, Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Corinthians, that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And as we grow and as we read scripture, we recognize there are some things that may not be sinful. They may not be wrong, but actually they're not helpful to our growth as believers. And the last one is really speaking of moral wisdom, uh, such as is seen in right living. So these are the way that this word that's translated knowledge here are used elsewhere in the New Testament. And of course, moral wisdom is just that knowledge of knowing what to do and how to respond and how to act in each and every given situation. Uh, it's a, it kind of ties nicely in with uh, the whole idea of virtue, but it, it kind of puts the meat and the bones around virtue itself and it gives us it in a godly framework. So this is why we then add knowledge. It's so important that as we grow in grace, we don't just go, well, yeah, I, I know that I, I, I shouldn't get drunk and I shouldn't swear and I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. That's great. And your conscience will convict you of those things. But then what is actually God calling you to? God has a higher standard than just those things. And that's where we start to grow. So that's why knowledge is next on this list. OK, we then get to our, our next one, our fourth one, if you like. And this is and to knowledge, we then add temperance. Now, temperance is not a word that we tend to use much uh, in our vernacular today. But really, it's referring to self-control. You recognize, of course, self-control is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, people refer to the fruits of the Spirit, plural, but really it's not. It's singular. It's the fruit. When you have the Holy Spirit, then it will produce the fruit, which is, of course, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. So all of those are the fruit of the Spirit. But temperance is self-controlled, or the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. Now, why does it come at this point on the list? You may think that it should come earlier on the list. Well, Actually, it needs to come where it comes after knowledge. Why? Well, quite simply, you see, the mastery of the flesh can only be accomplished through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to do it through a bit of determination. You're not going to do it by making a New Year's resolution, as we were saying earlier on this morning. And this is why scriptural knowledge comes before the five characteristics that now follow of a child of God. Because unless you have that knowledge, you don't understand the context or the ability uh, that we are given through the grace of God to actually fulfill the things that we that are spoken of here. So this temperance, again, it, it speaks very much of controlling your natural human fleshly lusts and desires and so on. And let's make it very clear that God has given us a lot of natural desires and they are good because God has given them and God only gives good gifts. But there is, of course, the whole concept, uh, context here that they are in moderation or they're in the right place. You know, God has set very clear boundaries for us. 
And of course, we can look at it very simply with something like food. You know, we, we all know very well that food, you know, we make, we crave food, we get hungry, we want to eat it, and that's natural, and that's right, and that's proper. God has given us that desire. But if then we get the opportunity to eat, and then we are like a glutton, and we just eat excessively, well, we're not going to be satisfied. We're actually going to make ourselves unwell. And so there's a boundary, there's a context. And actually, eating less is actually far more satisfying than eating more. And I'm sure you, you kind of understand these. And these, these apply in all sorts of areas of the flesh where we have these desires that God has given us, but it's getting it right within the boundaries that God has set. So once again, these ideas that are being presented by Peter here, uh, this idea of temperance, it has to be in the knowledge of that which is revealed in scripture as to how to obtain this, how to do this. You won't do it just as I say through a, a strong self will. It'll only come through the grace of God working. And then to temperance, we're told we have to add patience. Now, I think this is, again, quite interesting. Why is patience so far down the list? Because wouldn't we think that patience is one of those things that should be right at the top there? So, you know, I want patience to be, you know, no, this is this is here for a reason. I think it's simply this, because until you attempt temperance and fail in your own strength, which inevitably you will. And if you haven't done, I'm sure you will do. We probably all have already. You know, you, you try and live the way that God says we should live. You try and reject the excesses of the flesh and so on. But we fail if we try and do it naturally. So until we've come to that place, you're not going to appreciate the value of patience. So what is patience? Well, scripturally speaking, patience is waiting on the Lord. That's what patience really is all about. It's not just biting your tongue when you really want to do something, but you can't. It's actually coming to that place where you're in perfect peace. The, the word of God tells us that, that God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him, on thee. So the, the big part of this for us to understand is actually if we want to exercise patience, as we've been told, that should be part of our character, then it comes through waiting on the Lord. In Psalm 27, we read this. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies. For false witnesses are risen up against me and such as breathe out cruelty. Let me just pause here and just add a couple of comments on these few verses. When we read in Psalms, you read a lot about mine enemies and so on and those that have risen up against me. Typically, we tend to think of external enemies. David, for example, had a number of external enemies. He had people like Saul, who ended up hunting him down. He had uh, the um, uh, the Amalekites. He had the Philistines and, and so on, other external enemies. But one of the greatest enemies that we have is self. And we need to read these Psalms with that in mind as well. So teach me thy way, O Lord. Lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Who's my greatest enemy? Well, I am my greatest enemy, my flesh life. So I'm saying, Lord, lead me in a really plain, a simple way because of my flesh life, because of that which is natural. Deliver me not over to the will of my flesh life. For false witnesses are risen against me because my own heart and mind will try and convince me that I need to do this or that. I need to take that to, to satisfy me. I need to do this to find fulfillment. There are false witnesses and they're risen against me. And such as breathe out cruelty. They'll tell me that what I'm doing following Jesus is wrong or it's foolish or it doesn't make sense. Or they'll come up with some 
intellectual argument that my flesh will try and use against me. And then we carry on. I had fainted unless I had believed. So you notice how it goes back to that foundation of faith again. I'd have fainted unless I believed. To see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Notice that it's not just waiting until we get to eternity. Actually, we can see and experience and know the goodness of the Lord right here and now. And then we have this verse. Verse 14 of Psalm 27. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That is patience. It's learning to trust in the Lord. It's learning to trust in his goodness, in his provision. Not to trust in our own abilities, our own strengths. It's waiting upon him. Well, then to patience, we then add godliness. I'm just going to read this to you. Once our faith has compelled us to live a morally upright life, and once our studying of scripture has empowered through his grace us to exercise self-control, and we have learned to wait on the Lord, we will then, we will then begin to bear a likeness to our heavenly father. And that's what godliness is all about. It's really God-likeness. It's becoming like God in our attitudes, in our mindset, and our character. There's a number of uh, attributes of God. Uh, there's some attributes of God that, that are, are just purely God, that we can't emulate or, or, or be like them in any way. I mean, God is all-knowing. We, we can't be like that. God is all-seeing, omniscient. You know, God knows everything and sees everything. We, we, those are attributes that we don't possess. But there's other attributes that God has, like love like peace, you know, like gentleness, the fruit of the spirit, for example. You know, there's many attributes that God has that are, by commentators, referred to as communicable attributes. In other words, things that are of God, but we can emulate them. We can be like those things of God as we grow in grace. And that's what godliness is all about. In other words, again, it's bearing that likeness to our heavenly father. You know, your offspring will be like you. Uh, any parent will know this. They will be like you in the way that they they look. Um, there will be natural attributes that your children will share with you as parents. But they'll also be like you in terms of temperament and attitude and character. And of course, as they grow, they develop their own characters and so on. But you're sowing into their young lives. And so they learn what they learn from being like you. When children are born, they don't come in the world with a, with a, with a blueprint of how they're going to be. I mean, yes, of course, we are all born in iniquity, so we all have the sin problem. But children learn, certainly in the formative years, everything really they need to know and they do know from their parents. And so we are so responsible for sowing into their lives attitudes and, and characteristics and so on. You know, if, if your children see in you a gentleness and they see a patience, well, that's going to be something that they will emulate. You know, and it doesn't stop them later in life, maybe going off on different directions. But if you as a parent show that, your children will show those things. Now, that's how we have to be as God's children. We're to show his characteristics, that God-likeness. Oswald Chambers made this comment. He said, the resounding evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the unmistakable family likeness to Jesus Christ and the freedom from everything which is not like him. I love that. You know, 
Jesus spoke of the fact that he was persecuted. Um, and obviously if we are going to follow after him, then we also will suffer persecution because not because of ourselves, but because of that godliness in us. So we need to be aware that the more we grow in grace, we will become like Jesus, we'll be treated like the world treated Jesus. That's just part of, part of the course. We should expect those things. We go on um, from godliness, godlikeness to brotherly kindness. Now, once again, given all that we're told in the New Testament about loving our brothers and the, the new commandment that Jesus gives, you may think this needs to be earlier on the list. But actually, once again, I believe this is exactly where it should be, because this list really that Peter gives us is all about getting your own house in order. You know, before somebody is um, scripturally permitted to take care of the church of God in various roles as a pastor, as an elder or so on, they are told they must make sure their own house is in order. And I think in a, a, a simple sense here, this is what Peter's giving us, that our own lives have got to be in order because if they're not, you're not going to exude this kind of brotherly kindness that we're being uh, encouraged, admonished to do here by Peter. Now, what is brotherly kindness? Well, it's the Greek word uh, Philadelphia. Um, let me just read to you from John 1 John 4, 20 and 21. It says, if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. Very simple. I encourage you, if you want to do a review of this, go listen to the sermon that Leon preached for us a few weeks back. It was really about this issue of brotherly love, that we can call each other brothers and really understand and mean this, um, uh, the, understand the relationship that we're to have one another with one another, just like a brother to a brother or a brother and a sister, that kind of bond that we should have together. But, you know, unless all those other things are in place, we're going to struggle with that brotherly kindness. It's that uh, fraternal affection is the idea that's being conveyed here. But, you know, unless you've got, of course, your bedrock of faith, unless you have that virtue, unless you have that scriptural knowledge, uh, unless you have that temperance and that patience and that godlikeness, you're going to struggle with brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness builds on all of those things. And if the others are in place, then brotherly kindness. And this is not to say that is there any less important as we go through the list. Brotherly kindness is something that should be obvious. It should be seen in the life of every believer. The love that we have for each other, the care that we show to each other. Well, we can conclude the list. And to brotherly kindness, we're to add love. Now, is there a difference between brotherly kindness and love? Well, actually, yeah, Peter knew this all too well. Peter, if you remember in John 21, uh, had a situation, um, verse 15 to 17. If you will, just allow me to read to you that particular portion. I'm sure you're familiar with it. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead and Jesus is uh, up in Galilee. He sees the disciples. Um, and uh, I'm going to read to you from verse um, um, 15. It says, So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? Now, the word that Jesus used when he said that was agape. That's the word that we have here in Second Peter 1 verse 7 for love is agape. It means unconditional love. 
And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter's response is this. He said, yes, Lord, thou knowest that I phileo you. That's the word that we have for brotherly kindness here. It's the word, again, that's uh, translated from, from the Greek word um, um, Philadelphia, phileo. That's the idea. Okay, so Peter responds and doesn't say, Lord, I do love you unconditionally. He said, I love you with brotherly affection. And then we read, Jesus says unto him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he carries on. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, agape thou me, or do you love me unconditionally? He said unto him, Lord, thou knowest that I flayo you. In other words, I love you with this brotherly affection. And he said unto him, feed my sheep. And then verse 17, he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, phileo thou me. And Peter was grieved because Jesus brings that standard down effectively that last time for Peter. Phileo thou me. And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me. And he said unto him, Lord, you know that I phileo thou you. Peter wasn't ready at that point in his ministry to say, Lord, I love you unconditionally. Of course, there's a big picture here that Peter had denied Jesus three times in that courtyard. Jesus effectively restoring Peter to that rank of disciple. Peter had talked himself out of it. He said, I'm not his disciple. Jesus said, by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. And when on the resurrection morning, um, they get to the tomb and the the women are told to go to tell his disciples and Peter. Peter is singled out from amongst the disciples because Peter said, I'm no longer his disciple or effectively that, to that extent. Jesus now brings him back into the fold by his grace and love. That's a, a, another study, maybe for another time. But this is interesting that Peter here in these verses uses these two things that we're to have this brotherly kindness, fraternal affection for one another. But then to that brotherly kindness, we're to add unconditional love. It's something deeper and broader and more wonderful. You know, we may love each other and Christ like a brother, but do we love unconditionally? David Guzik says this in summary of these things. Add to your faith virtue. We begin our life with God with faith. But faith progresses into virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And love being the capstone of all God's work in us. So this Christian character then that we've just looked at, this is how we should be. We build on that foundation of faith. We add to that virtue, just recognizing that there is a way we should live. There's a right and the wrong for how a Christian should act and behave and so on. But then we need to add knowledge to that, to put all of that in a scriptural uh, framework and understand God's plan, then we understand temperance, that it will only come through the grace of God working in us. To that then comes patience, which is really that waiting upon the Lord. And then, of course, that God-likeness, that godliness, as we start to become more like our Lord in our character and the way that we think and act and so on. To that, we then add brotherly kindness as our relationship starts overflowing to those around us and particularly those uh, within the, the church of Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, that love, which is that all embracing and brings all of this together. Character is what God knows you are. Reputation 
is what men think you are. It's a quote by a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill, but I love that that quote. Again, let me read it. Character is what God knows you are. It's what you really are inside. And you can't fool God, of course. But reputation is what men think you are. That's what we love to present to other people, isn't it? You know, a reputation. This is This is how I want to be seen. But character is the truth. Character is really what we're like. And this is how a Christian's character uh, should play out. This is what we should look like. And then we're told, Peter says, that if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren. Now, remember, we're to produce fruit. And we're told, nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if we're to grow, we're to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. But note that it doesn't say that you will be fruitful in your labours or in your work. I think this is interesting. You're saying that if these things abound, if this, this character is, is your life, then it doesn't say that you'll be fruitful in the work that you do, fruitful in your ministry. No, it says you'll be fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is so much in line with what we read elsewhere in Scripture, the goal of the believer is clearly given in Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. And we just read that. It says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. So notice that. This is, this is why the Lord has given the gifts to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What's the purpose of it all? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We become like Christ. We become joined together with Christ. We become one with him. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slide of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, Again, just confirms it may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So the purpose of ministry, the purpose of all that we do within the church is that we grow up into Christ, that we become mature in Christ, that we have this abiding relationship in him. Not that we do the works or the ministry. That's great. That's wonderful. It has its place. Of course, we're to produce fruits. We've been created for good works and so on. But the primary objective is that we grow up into this abiding unconditional love relationship with jesus christ romans 8 29 and 30 puts it this way for whom he did foreknow he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son see this is the purpose this is what the goal of the christian life is that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified now notice that last word there them he also glorified david guzik uh made sorry not david guzik uh dave shirley made the comment uh that the glory of anything is that it fulfills its created potential if you look at a flower the glory of a flower is that it fulfills its created potential and becomes what it was designed to be it's the same for you and i our purpose is to become like jesus christ to become perfected in him that's our glory that's what we are going for that's what our aim is you know all the other things of the ministry and the work that we do all of those are great but the real objective is that we become christ-like 
And so again, that verse, for if these things be in you and abound, that characteristics we've just gone through this morning, they make you that you should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read this quote to you from Oswald Chambers. He said this, if we are going to live as disciples of Jesus, we have to remember that all efforts of worth and excellent excellence are difficult. The Christian life is gloriously difficult, but its difficulty does not make us faint and cave in. It stirs us to overcome. Do we appreciate the miraculous salvation of Jesus Christ enough to be our utmost for his highest, our best for his glory? God saves people by his sovereign grace through the atonement of Jesus. And it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 But we have to work out that salvation in our everyday practical living. Philippians 2.12 If we will only start on the basis of his redemption to do what he commands, then we will find that we can do it. If we fail, it's because we have not yet put into practice what God has placed within us. Remember what I said right at the start this morning, that God, as Peter said, that God has already given us all these things that pertain to godliness. But a crisis will reveal whether or not we've been putting it into practice. If we will obey the Spirit of God and practice in our physical life what God has placed within us by his Spirit, then when a crisis does come, we will find that our own nature as well as the grace of God, will stand by us. Thank God that he does not give us difficult things to do. Sorry, let me read that again. Thank God that he does give us difficult things to do. His salvation is a joyous thing, but it is also something that requires bravery, courage and holiness. It tests us for all we are worth. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory, Hebrews 2 verse 10. And God will not shield us from the requirements of sonship. God's grace produces men and women with a strong family likeness to Jesus Christ, not pampered, spoiled weaklings. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline to live the worthy and excellent life of a disciple of Jesus in the realities of life. And it is always necessary for us to make an effort to live a life of worth and excellence. I really just love that that quote by Oswald. Peter just carries on and says, But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. G. Campbell Morgan said this, Such a man sees the things of time and fails to discern those of eternity. He sees himself and his fellow men, but not God. This nearsightedness is destructive of a true Christian experience and therefore makes advance impossible. He goes on and says, The reason for this condition is also stated. Such a one has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That is to say, he's failed to respond to all the enlargement of life and vision which came to him when he received cleansing of his nature at the very beginning of his Christian life. Verse 10, Peter says, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Interesting verse in itself, but Spurgeon makes this comment. He says this, It will be asked, however, why is calling here put before election, seeing election is eternal, and calling takes place in time? I reply, because calling is first to us. The first thing which you and I can know is our calling. We cannot tell whether we are elect until we feel that we are called. 
we must first of all prove our calling and then our election is sure most certainly. Charles Spurgeon. See, seeing these things in our lives, things we've been going through this morning, is evidence of our calling and therefore also evidence of our eternal election. Doesn't invalidate our free choice or God's sovereignty. See, if we are in Christ, he is able to present us faultless before our Father in heaven. That last verse, last line says, you shall never fall. And Jude obviously gives us that great uh, closing statement in his uh, letter. And we're told, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What a great hope we have. This abundant entrance when we enter heaven by living this way. You see, this is alluding to also the possibility to enter heaven without an abundant entrance. This is a, a stark warning that's kind of by um, uh, a process of deduction, what Peter's telling us as well. John tells us that we've got to be careful not to lose those things we've worked for. Paul tells us our work can be burnt up, leaving us with little reward in 1 Corinthians 3.15. Wherefore, I will not be uh, be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it may, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. You know, I, I love this. Peter's saying... I, guys, I really want to encourage you to live this way. It would be, it'd be wrong of me. I don't want to be negligent to not tell you these things. I want to stir you up so that you live this way and you know how you should live. And he says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus has showed me. Peter knew that his time here was coming to an end. He knew that the Lord was going to call him home. And so he's giving this admonition and instruction to us so that we can live the way that we should live as Christians. It's a great lesson to, to go and review this. Moreover, Peter says, I will endeavour that you be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. In other words, go over this. Let it sink into your, your understanding. Or, you know, If necessary, write out this list. Pray through it. Ask the Lord to do these things in your life. Always be thinking about how we should be living as a Christian. What is it the Lord's calling us to? Let me just ask you in closing, what is your legacy? Peter knew that his days were numbered, that he was going to be leaving soon. You know, what is your legacy? Yesterday, we were up in the loft doing some tidying up. And I just came across a piece of paper um, that was uh, a cut out from the church magazine where I used to go back in Kent many, many years ago uh, after the um, uh, Thanksgiving service for my gran uh, after she'd gone home to be with the Lord. And many of you will know that I've spoken a, a lot about my gran, how she was such a great influence. Uh, my love for scripture partly came through the fact that I used to go down after school, take the newspaper down for her, and she used to sit down and just talk to me about the Bible, talk to me about Israel. She had a picture of um, Jerusalem up on her back wall, and she always used to talk to me about you know, what was going on and, and so on. And she also used to read to me uh, Oswald Chambers repeatedly, and that's partly where my love for Oswald Chambers' writings came from. I just wanted to read this in the in the light of legacy. Now, this this could be true of so many that have gone before us, but this was said at, at my grand's funeral service by the minister at the time. He said, "I know that if Connie, my grand's name was Connie, and yes, that's why we called Connie Connie as well. Uh, I know that if Connie would say anything today, she would say, those of you who are Christians.'" Make a greater act of commitment. 
because the world is busy in all our lives and can distract us from our purpose in being here, what we are called by God to be and to do. And if there are people here today uncommitted to the Christian faith, she would want them to go away thoughtfully, to ask, what is life if at the end there is nothing? Meaninglessness. If there is no God in this bewildering world, if there is no purpose, if you don't know the love of God in Jesus. She would want them to seek, to talk, even perhaps to attend services, and under God's grace to find the sort of faith which sustained her, gave her joy, and leaves her today in fulfilment as she is with her maker and her saviour. That was the, the legacy, in a sense, that my grand left. And she, she was such a godly woman. She had faults, but she just desired for people to know the Lord. You know, what is your legacy? You know, if we're living this way, as Peter's saying we should be living, then people around us should see, they should know these things. How would you be remembered? Just want to read to you. This is the last thing in closing. Words from a song by the Christian band Petra by Bob Hartman. He's a great lyricist and a, a wonderful man of God. This is one of their songs called Believer Indeed. And the, the lyrics are this. On this journey, we begin at birth. This fleeting moment that we spend on earth. No second chance to live it all again. It must be now or never to cherish each endeavor. What will they say that I've left behind? A faithful heritage for all to find? What will they see? I want my legacy to be. He was a believer indeed. He had a heart of a different breed. He made his mark and lived by his creed. A true believer, a believer indeed. Am I living everything I say? Am I pointing others to the way? Will I leave this world a better place? Will Jesus say he knew me? Is Jesus living through me? Did I maintain my authenticity? a man of honour and integrity. Remembering me, I hope they will truly see he was a believer indeed. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this time this morning, for this wonderful teaching that Peter gives us of how a Christian character should truly be. Father, help us to really think over, to meditate on these things, to Lord them, let them permeate our understanding our hearts and our minds to challenge us lord to live godly lives in christ jesus in these days in which we live lord just do this work in us we pray by your spirit by your grace we ask this morning in jesus name amen